The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So over the last mm, several months, well, I've been here, I've been on and off kind of talking about the different factors of the Eightfold Path. And uh, today I'd like to mostly emphasize the last aspect, right concentration. But before I start talking about that, I want to put it into context of the Eightfold Path as a whole. So to talk a little bit about um, what the Eightfold Path is and how the various parts of the Eightfold Path fit together and how concentration plays into, into all of that. So the Eightfold Path is a, uh, I think of it as a a set of practices that support our ability to meet the present moment, to begin to understand what's happening in our minds and how our minds in particular get us caught into struggle, distress, dissatisfaction, this orientation around dissatisfaction, unreliability, distress, is kind of the the problem the Buddha was trying to solve when he went out from his home and began to explore the spiritual life. He was interested in understanding, why do we suffer? Why is this life so difficult for us? Is this a part and parcel of life that we have to suffer or is there a possibility of being free from this suffering? And he did understand, he uncovered a key piece of the mind, a couple of key pieces of the way the mind responds to experience that essentially creates our struggles. Now that's not to say that we are creating um, our own pain in our lives. I mean, the, the, there are things happening outside of us that, um, you know, if, if we are walking across the street and we get hit by a car, there is the, the, uh, the pain that results from that. And uh, no amount of meditation practice is going to prevent that pain what the Buddha found, though, was that, there, that, that most of what we struggle about, most of what we suffer about, is not so much the physical pain itself, but our reaction, our response to life, our response to the world, our response to unpleasant, our wanting to hold on to pleasant, our sense of wanting to control things, to have things be a certain way. That's what we suffer over. And the... Um, The suffering, that kind of suffering around our reaction to experience, it often, it often feels like it's not much we can do about it. But there is, a, there is a... I guess what I'll say is that often it feels like there's a very quick response when something happens. We autom- it's like we leap off of it and react. We leap off of it we want to hold on to. We leap and want to get rid of. And so there's this kind of really quick reactivity that we're living with in our lives. And um, one of the keys of the Buddha's discovery was that that quick reactivity, there is a little bit of a gap in there between the thing that happens and our reactivity. And in that little bit of a gap, there's the possibility for waking up and altering the direction of our mind that we habitually respond in reactivity when things are pleasant or unpleasant. But the, uh, it's not necessary. And that habitual response of reactivity, when we begin to look at it in our meditation, in our practice, we really see just how much of our dissatisfaction, our miserableness, our frustration, our confusion results from our relationship 
to things and is not inherent in the things themselves. And so this was the, the insight of the Buddha and this is, um, this was his, his framing of this of how we can begin to free ourselves of this habitual reactivity is the Eightfold Path. So the, um, the Eightfold Path has three components or sections that each of these eight factors fits into. There's the, um, the first aspect well, I'll start in the middle, actually. It's often start, we start in the middle with this description. There's the aspect of our ethical conduct that we um, cultivate non-harming in our relationships with the world. The purpose of that is partly that we begin to see that as we engage or as we explore our minds, as we explore how our own reactivity makes us suffer, we start to appreciate that when we engage in certain kinds of activities like lying, telling untruths, or um, like um, manipulating people with our sexuality or... um, taking things that don't belong to us, that our minds get kind of reactive around that. So there's a a way that engaging in conduct that's harmful to others actually harms ourselves as well. And this is an exploration that we begin to make in our practice, is how our ethical conduct supports not only the world, but also supports ourselves. And really this practical aspect of it is, is one of the important pieces that the Buddha was pointing to. This ethical conduct, which comprises the three middle section, the three middle aspects of the Eightfold Path, wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. When we engage ethically in the world, we have a sense of non-regret. And this supports us. This supports a, um, an ease of mind, a peace of mind. There's a term called the bliss of blamelessness that the engaging with this aspect of the Eightfold Path supports that bliss, ease of mind around regret remorse. So just briefly, these three aspects of the Eightfold Path, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. Wise speech is about engaging skillfully in our speech. And it's talked about as things, kinds of speech to avoid, um, avoiding false speech, divisive speech, harsh speech, and idle chatter. And the, the, the first three of those we really see how they are often, we can see how they cause harm. And that we're speaking harshly or divisively where we may be hurting somebody's feelings, we may be creating divisions between people. False speech is not in line with the truth. And there may be times when we engage in false speech where we think, well, it's, it's less harmful to lie to this person than it is to tell them the truth. Um, if you have that kind of a relationship with a lie, you might just evaluate or think about, is there some other thing I could say? You know, some other, or just be silent. You know, but, uh, well, a simple example. Um, you know, I used to uh, have the, you know, I would sometimes have the white lie of if I, if I was too tired or didn't feel like getting together with somebody, I'd say, oh, I'm busy or something. You're just a small white lie. But now I just say, you know, I'm too tired. <laughs> you know, it's a, I, I need to rest right now. Or, you know, so it's just, just a simple... Sometimes we can just reframe what we're saying so that it is not telling a falsehood. The idle chatter may be a little bit more um, 
hard to understand how it contributes to our uh, harming. How does it contribute to harming? And it's a subtler kind of harm, in a way. It's a kind of harm that contributes to the agitation of our mind, keeps us from being settled and peaceful. You know, that if we're, if we're continually thinking about um, well, gossip and, you know, the, 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 um, the suttas talk about, you know, chatter at the well, talk of kings and villages and towns, things like that. So, you know, like, um, just general chatter, kind of gossipy kind of thing. It's not, it's not so much necessarily that the, that the, uh, that the speech itself is going to cause anybody's harm, but it's, it's not allowing the mind to be in a more peaceful state. So it's, it's more of a reflection on an inner, taking us away from an inner, deeper kind of peace when we're engaged with idle chatter. So one thing I like to remember about this part, because, um, you know, we can, in hearing teachings like this, beat ourselves up, give ourselves a hard time, or either say, either say, you know, oh, I'm a bad person for, do, you know, chattering or whatever, or we just give up altogether and say, well, it's impossible, you know, I might as well give up this Buddhist practice because they tell you you can't speak idle chatter, so I can't do that, so forget it. Um, um, one thing I find somewhat uh, comforting is that the teachings say that um, this idle chatter, this aspect of the mind that tends towards idle chatter, is one of the very last pieces of um, unskillfulness to go away in our progress through our path. So... Uh, you can have completely let go of greed, completely let go of aversion, and still be chattering idly. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it's going to be with us for a long time, so let's think about it more as an exploration. Oh, look at this. I'm, I'm kind of engaged in this idle chatter. You know, what's that about? Am I feeling uncomfortable with silence? Am I feeling um, um, like I want to impress somebody with how much I know? Am I trying to make a connection with somebody? You know, sometimes idle chatter actually serves a deeper underlying purpose. So um, wise action has to do with our uh, engagement with actions in the world. So refraining from killing beings, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from harming people with our sexuality. And again, this is about not creating harm in our world and and the um, and the part of the point here is if we want to be free from suffering if we, if we are if we are looking towards how can how can my mind be free from this reactive suffering part of the exploration is why contribute to the suffering of others so not only does it help us be free from remorse but it supports a more general field of ease in the world. And the, um, the teaching around um, um, ethical conduct also speaks around not just the bliss of blamelessness, but the freedom from fear. It's a gift that uh, our age engaging in ethical conduct offers a freedom from fear to the people who are around us, the beings who are around us. And so it, it serves these two purposes. It helps us to, to let go of our um, remorse. It also helps us to see where we're tending to act out of greed, out of aversion, out of delusion. These actions tend to be motivated from those areas. And so it supports us. It supports our minds. It supports our hearts to practice with these ethical Conduct, this, this ethical conduct. And then the third aspect, wise livelihood, my speech, wise action, wise livelihood of the Eightfold Path, um, is about bringing our livelihood into alignment essentially with wise speech and wise action. That how we engage in our um, 
the way we support ourselves, we don't have to lie or steal or harm with our sexuality or speak harshly or falsely. So that's the, that's the kind of basic um, teaching around wise livelihood, is that we not engage in ways that make us speak or act unethically. So this um, ethical conduct really provides a foundation, and actually there's a teaching, you know, it doesn't sound on the face of it like it, it uh, connects with concentration. But there's a... I'll read a little bit of this to you. Um, For one who is ethical and endowed, endowed with ethical conduct, there's no need for an act of will. May non-remorse arise in me. It is a natural law that non-remorse will arise in someone who has ethical conduct. For one free of remorse, there's no need for an act of will. May gladness arise in me. It's a natural law that gladness will arise in one who's free from remorse. For one who is glad at heart, there's no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It's a natural law that joy will arise when one is glad at heart. For one who's joyful, there's no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It is a natural law that the body will be serene for one who is joyful. For one of serene body, there is no need for an act of will. May I feel happiness. It is a natural law that one who is serene will feel happiness. For one who is happy, there is no need for an act of will. May my mind be concentrated. It is a natural law for one who is happy that the mind will be concentrated. And it goes on from there to the results of concentration leading to wisdom, leading to to insight. So this ethical conduct is really the ground. When we um, behave ethically, our hearts become at ease, more at ease. We delight in our ethical conduct. We delight in the freedom from fear, the bliss of blamelessness. This delight brings a sense of, of gladness, and gladness, happiness, and, or uh, tranquility. Gladness brings tranquility, and tranquility brings happiness, and happiness is actually the supporting condition for concentration. Not what I thought when I started concentration practice. You know, I thought it was effort that was a supporting condition for concentration. But it is this happiness, this ease of heart, is one of the key conditions for concentration. And so the the ethical conduct aspect of the Eightfold Path supports this. It's talked about as being kind of the, the ground out of which the rest of the practice grows. So then... Um, the next aspect of the Eightfold Path, if we think about... Um, I'm kind of going through the Eightfold Path from the perspective of one of the... The Buddha sometimes talked about his training as a gradual training. You know, we start with um, you know, where we can, where we are, and part of that beginning place is with generosity, with ethical conduct. And then from there, we move to cultivating the mind cultivating our inner world. So the first part of our practice, this ethical conduct practice, is kind of about cleaning up our relationship with the world. We clean up how we um, engage. The next aspect is more about, this next aspect is about mental cultivation. It's about looking at our relationship to our own minds. And it's a natural extension, in a way, of... um, the ethical conduct in the outer world, we begin to see in exploring um, our minds with mindfulness, with meditation, that there's so many ways that we harm our own minds, that we harm our own selves, ways that we judge ourselves, ways that we're cruel to ourselves, ways that we're harsh to ourselves. We speak harshly. We speak divisively in our minds. We engage in actions, you know, against ourselves of, you know, oh, you shouldn't have done that. That was a bad thing to do. You know, we, 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 we speak harshly to ourselves. We, um, so this aspect of mental conduct is, is the beginning to, to look at how am I engaging 
in my own mind in a way that's causing harm for me. And we can kind of think of the whole path of practice as be one, being one of looking at non-harming, first, first in the outer world and then non-harming in the inner, in the inner life. We begin to see this kind of um, mirror of the ethical conduct towards ourselves. And then even more deeply, we begin to see how when we're engaging in aversion or wanting, that that very activity of wanting something to be different, whether we want to get rid of something that's in the world that we don't like or we want to hold on to something that we do like, that very activity of wanting is itself harmful. It's harmful, it can be harmful in a kind of a subtle way. It's, it's, uh, it creates stress, it creates dissatisfaction. You know, we, think, we think perhaps there's an objective sense of dissatisfaction. I want this thing, I don't have that thing. So there's that dissatisfaction. But what we don't really notice until we start paying attention, is that dissatisfaction is created by the very wanting things to be different. It's not objective in the world that one be dissatisfied with those conditions. So it's, it's in our own relationship to experience. And when we look at that, when we look at the experience of aversion, when we look at the experience of greed, we see how painful it is in the very moment of feeling it, it is painful. We sometimes miss that because we are focused on either the getting rid of the thing or the having of the thing, and we're focused kind of on how great the world is going to be when I get rid of that thing or have that thing. And we're in an imagined future while we're in that wanting. And because that imagined future has perhaps a pleasant feeling tone to it, you know, how wonderful it's going to be, We miss the fact that we're suffering right here and right now because of that aversion or greed. So this, um, so in a sense, we're kind of harming ourselves. We're creating a sense of um, lack of peace, of lack of ease through this very wanting, this very aversion. And so we begin to understand that. We begin to understand the drawbacks of that wanting, of that aversion. And we may begin to have an interest in exploring it. Now there's a kind of a tricky place here in that, so this this mental cultivation I'm talking about, I'm talking about it very generally right now. It comprises the three aspects of uh, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. Um, That um, exploration around the greed, the aversion. Uh, Initially, we might think that, well, I've got to get rid of that greed. I've got to get rid of that aversion. It's causing me distress, so I have to get rid of it. Well, that very notion of getting rid of is yet more aversion. So it it kind of, we have to take care with our exploration around um, our difficulties, the ways that we harm ourselves, that we not additionally harm ourselves in trying to get rid of what we think is harming us. So the, um, the practice, and this, I think the Buddha was just brilliant. I mean, first of all, in wise, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, in wise effort, the Buddha suggested first we gain an understanding of what things help us in terms of letting go of suffering and what things help us, uh, what things get in our way in terms of letting go of suffering. And basically, in a very simple way, he says, states of mind that come out of greed, out of aversion, out of delusion, get in our way. States of mind that come out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, or to put it perhaps more positively, um, generosity, love, and wisdom, those support us to move to that place of inner non-harming. Greed, aversion, and delusion tend to be, can be outwardly harmful, but also harm us inwardly. Create the space of lack, of dissatisfaction, of sense that things are not right. 
So the, the wise effort is about beginning to recognize what's helpful, what's not helpful, and to cultivate those things that are helpful. See if we can begin to abandon those things that are unhelpful. But that abandonment of what's unhelpful, that abandonment of um, greed, aversion, delusion, can't be done with greed, aversion, delusion as its motivator. So it's a, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's kind of a tricky business. So the, the path of, of mindfulness is an interesting avenue. And this, I think this is really where the Buddha was so brilliant in pointing to this quality of mindful awareness that we can be aware, clearly knowing what's happening in our experience. So there's um, aversion arising in our experience. We don't like something. If we're acting through that aversion, if we have that aversion in our minds and it's motivating our activities, we are in that space of harming ourselves. We're in that, caught by that state of mind that actually creates that sense of lack, creates that sense of... It, it is a state of suffering in and of itself, as the more that we observe it. When we actually observe aversion, we actually observe wanting, we feel the suffering of that state in and of itself. When we turn our attention with mindfulness to that, it creates a new context, a new landscape in the mind. And on the face of it, just becoming aware of aversion. Aversion is happening right now. Hard to imagine how that would be so powerful. This is where I think the Buddha was so brilliant to actually recognize this quality of kind of almost stepped back awareness, observing a, a non-judgmental attention to what's happening in the present moment. Aversion is arising right now. That recognition... This is right mindfulness, kind of a simple version of right mindfulness. The simple recognition, this is what's happening right now. It's like it takes the, um, the mind from the place of being motivated by that mental state, from being motivated by that aversion to take action and do things and fix things and change things, to just recognizing, oh, this is what's happening right now so that it, we at least then begin to have a choice, perhaps. So there's a version happening right now. There's something that we don't like. Some aspects of that aversion are probably simply, get me out of here or get rid of this thing. This is a, you know, it's, it's kind of just that push away energy. Some aspects of that aversion may actually have some wisdom to it. You know, some aspects of that state of mind that, that has that sense of wanting to push away an experience might have compassion involved. You know, that in this situation, I'm being harmed. Maybe I need to get out of this situation. So when we become aware that aversion is happening, we can begin to recognize which parts of that state of mind are unskillful unhelpful. If I act out of aversion to take myself out of here, if I hate the person that I'm in front of, if there's that energy of hatred and hostility and lashing out happening, we're cultivating that quality of aversion. We may, in being able to see that aversion with mindfulness, with wise mindfulness, right mindfulness, we may be able to recognize, okay, for compassion for myself, I need to take myself out of here. And that produces a completely different relationship with the action of leaving than lashing out and being harsh. So the, it takes some wisdom to recognize that. You know, it, it, the, the teaching of um, being aware, being mindful of our experience, this wise mindfulness, is not simply about just sitting back and letting things, you know, unfold in kind of however they unfold. It includes some recognition of 
what is skillful in this moment, what, what is helpful in this moment. So that there's the, the acknowledgement of what's unskillful, this is wise effort, the acknowledgement of what's unskillful, and the acknowledgement of what's skillful. In our minds there are going to be mixed motivations. And so if we can begin to connect to the more wholesome, beautiful motivations around love, compassion, generosity, wisdom, as we take action, it helps to support that side of the mind. It helps to support those qualities. If we're letting go of acting out of the aversion, the lashing out, the greed, it helps to lessen the um, uh, impact of those on our minds. So wise mindfulness allows us to meet whatever is happening with this kind of perspective that allows us to see the context in which something is happening so that we can not only recognize when unskillful states of mind are happening, but but recognize when skillful action is asked of us. The third aspect of mental cultivation is this aspect of right concentration, wise concentration. And in a sense, concentration develops or... um, is supported. It's supported in the way I described here a minute ago that, you know, the lack of remorse bringing, um, or the, the ethical conduct bringing a lack of remorse, the lack of remorse bringing delight, delight bringing joy, joy bringing tranquility of body, tranquility of body bringing happiness, happiness leading to concentration. So that there's that unfolding around concentration. There's also the unfolding around bringing our mindfulness and our effort together. So wise effort, wise mindfulness, as we engage with that, as we engage with the practice of noticing what's helpful, what's not helpful, being aware, being mindful, seeing if we can perhaps shift our relationship to experience. We notice, okay, there's anger. Anger's arising right now. Just that simple recognition begins to shift our relationship to that state of mind. So as we engage with wise Um, effort and wise mindfulness through our day, through our day in daily life, through our sitting, bringing our mindful attention back to present moment experience over and over again, we begin to cultivate concentration. Concentration is really a result of practice. It's not something we do. We, We can engage with wise effort we can engage with wise mindfulness. As we engage with those two together, what begins to happen is that there's a little bit more mindfulness that happens, gets more continuous. That very continuity of mindfulness, which results from the effort and the mindfulness together, that very continuity of mindfulness is wise concentration. Concentration is a state of more continuous mindfulness. Now there are different ways we can cultivate that wise concentration. We can cultivate, um, and the most common way we think of cultivating concentration is to stay with one experience. We pick the breath, for instance. We think of concentration as being stilling the mind on an experience. Uh, the, the TM movement was a, you know, an early manifestation of this. You know, saying a phrase in your mind over and over again, repeating a phrase over and over again, steadies the mind. It's a concentration practice. You keep coming back to that phrase over and over again. Here in our um, practice, we tend to recommend the breath as a place to steady the mind. We 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 pay attention to the breathing. We notice when we're pulled away from it. In the guided meditation, I suggested a kind of a blended approach of not pushing away anything, not necessarily having to let go of anything, but kind of keeping the breath in the foreground. It's like, and the breath is happening. Not needing to push anything else away. And the breath. And the breath. And over time, if you engage in that kind of um, exploration with the breath, because you're kind of that's your touchstone, 
the other pieces begin to kind of fall away a little bit and the breath becomes a little bit more uh, prominent. And we get a little bit more settled, a little more stable with the breath itself. That produces beautiful states of mind, really peaceful states of mind. State, it's state, a state of mind where there's not much happening except the breath. There's the breath, there's the state of mind that's feeling the breath, knowing the breath. And that state of mind that is connected with being with the breath in that way tends to be really, really pleasant. It feels really good. The mind likes that kind of attention. The mind likes settling down in that way. It produces states of joy, of delight, of beautiful, blissful body sensations. It's a very, very pleasant place to be. We can get caught in that pleasantness, but that's not the subject of today's talk so much. Um, so the, uh, that's one kind of concentration, this stability of attention. Things get really quiet. The other experiences begin to recede into the background. Sensations of the body start to be not so predominant. You may have a pain in your knee and it's not even bothering you. You know, there's sounds going by and it's like your mind is just right there with the breath. It's like, yeah, this feels good. We'll stay with the breath. One of my teachers, uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, talks about, um, you know, the, the, um, the mind moving towards concentration when it begins to really like what it's connecting with. And over time, as we pay attention to the breath in a, in a certain way, it begins to get really comfortable, it feels good, and so the mind likes that feeling, and it's, it gets drawn to that. My, uh, my teacher, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, says it's kind of like, it's kind of a funny analogy, but it, it, it serves its purpose. Um, he said, his teacher told him, if you want to catch an eel, you know, eels are really slippery, this is in Thailand. His teacher was Thai, so this was in Thailand. You don't want to catch an eel in the river. It's like hard to go in there and try to grab onto the eel. You know, it's like it's just going to swim right out of your hands. He said, so what you do is you give the eel something it likes. You put a jar and you put some um, raw meat into the jar. And then you put the jar in the river and the eels like the raw meat, so... They go right into the jar, and there you have your eels. So you give the eels something they like, and they go right to it. In a similar way, he talks about giving the mind something it likes, the comfortable breath, the appreciation of the breath. And this, is, this can be a little um, uh, refined in a way. You know, Initially, when we start paying attention to the breath, it's like, well, this is boring. <laughs> but we can begin to... Um, encourage a kind of relaxation around the breath. That, this was one place that really helped me, is how might the breath be comfortable? Kind of reflecting, like asking that question. Can, may the breathing be comfortable? And then taking a breath and feeling, whew, yeah, that actually feels pretty good. You know, so for one or two breaths, the mind is like right there, right happy to be with that breath. So the um, inclining towards comfortable breath, easeful breath can support this uh, mind coming into steadiness. So in that kind of concentration, as I said, everything else begins to fade away, recede into the background. becomes much more just the breath. So there's just that stillness. The, uh, the mind becomes still, connected with the breath, and the, all the other sensations kind of become still. So it's, it's a place of great stillness, this kind of concentration. It is still a manifestation of continuity of mindfulness. The, um, the concentration is developing because we are continuously mindful with the breath. That is the, the definition of concentration, the c- continuity of mindfulness with the breath. Effort, mindfulness together to stay with the breath creates this state of concentration. 
That's one kind of concentration. It's the one we typically think of. It's the one we often go for. We like the, we get a taste of it. We like that blissful state. Feels really good. Like, yeah, let's go back there. There's another kind of concentration that is um, very valuable to begin to cultivate. Um, the, the, the concentration of, that I just described, that concentration, the stillness of mind, is very helpful in terms of... Uh, it's kind of like the, the mindfulness is a knife and the concentration is, is sharpening that knife. So it's, um, it's creating the conditions where the mindfulness can meet experience more fully the more we uh, focus our attention in the concentration like that. But that state itself of that stillness feels really good. It can be a place where we can get refreshed. Uh, it, I mean, it's a very refreshing state of mind, that, that experience. It's a very refreshing state of mind. We get a taste of that, and coming out of it, it's like we've had the best rest. It feels very, very lovely to have that kind of rest. So it it has a place in the path, this kind of stilling of the mind. It not only sharpens the knife of mindfulness, it gives us a place of rest. In and of itself, the states of concentration don't lead to wisdom. They don't don't lead to deeper understanding. Um, The second kind of concentration I'm going to describe to you has more capacity to support wisdom. This is the kind of concentration that comes from a steadiness of mindfulness on changing experience. So, um, whatever's happening in the moment. It's not, it's not that we're trying to still our minds on one experience. It's like, oh, sound is happening right now. Body sensation, pressure's happening. Dryness. Vibration aching, calm is happening right now, thinking is happening right now. Just a kind of a steadiness of the attention moment to moment, knowing what's happening, also cultivates a kind of concentration. The concentration is about the steadiness of mindfulness rather than the stillness of the, the, the steadiness on an object, on an, a particular experience. So the mindfulness becomes steady in that the mind, the mindfulness simply knows this is what's arising right now, this is what's arising right now, this is what's arising right now. In that knowing, moment after moment, sound is arising right now, vibration now. That steadiness of knowing kind of... Um, there's no room for the mind to start reacting to what is known. It's like there's the sound. If I wasn't terribly mindful, it might be the sound and then thinking about the sound and getting lost in the sound. But if the mindfulness becomes steady, it's the, it's the sound and then it's the body sensation and then it's a feeling and then it's a, a thought and then it's a, another body sensation and a sound and it's just this continuity of awareness. The um, stability of the mindfulness like that creates this space of non-reactivity, which is, uh, you know, kind of in a way the one of the hallmarks of the concentration, that we are not reactive to what's happening in the present moment. In being with the breath, you know, whatever's happening, everything else is receded. There's not so much to react to as the mind is settled with the breath. But if some like like if if you're with the breath, you're pretty settled with the breath. Things are receding. You know, there's there's the sound of the cars kind of going by, but it's like it's not terribly disturbing. You're right there with the breath. It's all pretty receded. But if a fire engine were to go by, boom, you'd like pop out of that space, and and lose that state of concentration. Perhaps. In the space of this moment to moment concentration, it's just. Knowing, moment by moment, what's happening, what's happening, what's happening. So it, it leads to the, um, the recognition of 
how, one of the things that this kind of moment-to-moment concentration allows is for the mindfulness to begin to be aware of how our reactivity tends to get born. So we see the siren, we hear the siren, and then we see the mind kind of reaching out to um, get frustrated. And it's like, oh, so frustration, oh, and then it just can come back. So this kind of um, concentration, this um, steadiness of the awareness, the steadiness of the mindfulness, produces a kind of concentration that allows insight to happen. It allows us to begin to see very deeply into the way our minds construct this suffering, construct this reactivity. And as our minds begin to see into that, we begin to see into how the mind itself creates that reactivity and we understand pretty clearly watching over and over again, it's not something that happens right away, but watching over and over again we see, yeah, that way lies suffering. You know, when I when I move into that space of reactivity, there's suffering that happens. The more we see that, the more we recognize the suffering, the more we see the, just the little inklings of the movement towards reactivity created, the mind begins to let go of that. And this continuity of mindfulness begins to give the mind, it's again, it's sharpening that knife. It, it sharpens the mindfulness, the capacity of mindfulness to see into how our suffering is created. This is the terrain of, of insight, of wisdom. And this is the last aspect of the Eightfold Path. The first two aspects of the Eightfold Path, wise understanding and wise intention. Um, I'm coming to this at the end here. It uh, may seem odd to think about wisdom being the beginning of the path, but at the same time, we need to have some kind of an understanding at the beginning before we even engage with practice. You know, as I was saying, you know, ethical conduct is helpful. That's a little bit of the Buddha's wisdom. Understanding what's skillful, what's unskillful. Greed, aversion, delusion, not helpful. Love, compassion, wisdom, helpful. That's some wisdom that we, we kind of take that wisdom and we borrow that wisdom initially. It's not lived wisdom, but we perhaps take it in and think, yeah, oh, okay, that makes sense. Or if we don't even think it makes sense, we say, well, nothing else has worked. I'll give it a try, you know. I don't see how paying attention to aversion is going to do anything for me, but nothing else has worked, so I might as well give it a try. If we're, if we're willing to engage with the teachings in that way, we'll begin to get, understand the benefits of them more directly. And so that's why wisdom begins the path. Because we have to start somewhere. We, we, you know, it's like we, we have to um, uh, begin by understanding what direction we're going. You know, we're going on a path. What's the direction of our path? And the wisdom at the beginning of the path sets that direction. But it also is the, um, the manifestation of the path. Now, there's not so much of a distinction in walking this eightfold path between... Uh, where we're going, and how we are on the path. The path itself reflects the goal. We behave peacefully. We engage peacefully. We engage to let go of greed, aversion, and delusion, cultivate love, compassion, kindness, wisdom. That reflects, actually, the, uh, the result, the wisdom, the lived wisdom of the path that results from mindfulness and concentration coming together, the sharpening of that knife of mindfulness with the concentration begins to um, reveal these truths that we'd previously just been believing or trusting or taking faith in. Yes, it's helpful to let go of greed, aversion, and delusion. Let me practice that way. As we practice that way, we see, perhaps we might see sometime aversion falling away. We might see our mind kind of inclining towards a a suffering and recognize, oh, not so helpful. And we directly experience the benefit. We directly recognize the wisdom of that letting go. And it's not something we've, we've actually done. It's more of a result of the practice. And so the wisdom 
both begins and ends our practice. At the beginning, it's a kind of a um, taking something on trust. And at the end, it's the inner understanding of the path, the practice, the wisdom, the truth. So um, there's a couple minutes. I, um, I kind of wove the concentration piece that I wanted to talk about right into the midst of the Eightfold Path talk. Um, I may elaborate a little bit next week on on concentration a little more. There's a lot to say about concentration, but we've got a couple minutes if there's any comments or questions about what I've said. About a month ago, Gil talked about right concentration, and he mentioned the Pali word for that is translated as concentration, but I've forgotten it now. Samadhi. Samadhi, yes. And he said that an alternative translation, or uh, which sounds very similar to what you're saying, is um, right unification. That is, yes. bringing about unity of the mind. Yes, yes. And the unity of mind can come about through that one experience, or it can be the unity of awareness. Now, that awareness isn't, Knocked off, yeah, yeah. That that's a that the unification unification is a is a good word because um, the mind kind of collects together with a purpose. Another definition, uh, a used translation of that term. I don't know if he mentioned this one. Uh, it was my favorite version of um, that Gill offered of the translation for concentration. The word samadhi. Um, the adi part, the second half, basically means to stand. And the um, the sam part basically means with. So samadhi means standing with. So you know that gives you a sense of of what what the quality is. So standing with what's happening, and then he brought in the English word which has a very similar um, derivation, composed. Posed has that sense of standing. Calm means with, composed. So the concentrated mind is composed. And that brings a very different feeling than concentration. Yeah, it's, it's a much more kind of broad sense. We can be composed in many situations. When we think about concentration, it's like, you know, kind of in there with excluding things. So, yeah, compose is another good good term. I like that word, too. <laughs> and it's 11 o'clock, so we need to stop. So thank you for your attention.